Well, we are getting closer to Rusty being back, so hopefully I won't have to do this too many times or I don't leave the stage for the entire duration of the service. But we're surviving, I guess. If you have not already, I invite you to turn over to Psalm 16 with me as we continue our series through the Psalms this summer. Um, it's kind of fun because uh, on our end, like I said uh, when we first started, there's 150 of these things, which means we cannot get through all of them in one summer, which pretty much just lets us pick our favorites. Um, and, and this has been a favorite of mine, actually thanks to my wife, who actually before we started dating, like two weeks before, the first gift I ever got her was that my cousin was dating someone at the time who made like really pretty wood paintings. Um, and I got her to paint the last verse of Psalm 16 uh, for Damaris. And I gave it to her for her birthday, like what, a week before we started dating? And if you come to our house to this day, it's right above uh, when you walk in our front door. So you might be able to see that. It's, I think, a favorite of both of ours. So I'll read from Psalm 16 as we begin this morning. The psalmist writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, when Damaris and I first got married, uh, it was really hard for me to sleep for the first little bit. All of a sudden, uh, I was the man of the house, which meant I was waking up almost every night at like 3 a.m., worried that somebody was in our house somewhere or like something was going to explode in the middle of the night and I would have to go handle that. Um, I actually, I distinctly remember the first time that I woke up and heard our water softener purging in the basement, and I was convinced a pipe had burst. And I shot out of bed, my wife was very confused, and I ran around trying to figure out what the heck this, this rushing water sound was, just to realize that my softener was doing what my softener is supposed to do. Um, but right, I, I grew up and I, I had a dad who was always taking care of those things. So I never thought about it. You know, I, I would sleep soundly through the night because I knew that, that my dad would take care of us while we were asleep. So, so in all of this stress of, of learning to adjust to that role, uh, Damaris's family came out and they slept over for a few nights. And it was incredible. I woke up that first morning and realized that I had slept through the night. And as Damaris and I were talking about it, I realized that, that I had had my first good sleep in a very long time because I knew that my father-in-law had taken care of his house for many years and that if something went wrong, he was going to be there to help handle it. Even in my sleep, I had a strong sense of security because I knew that whatever might happen, my father-in-law would be able to help me. So this morning as we look at Psalm 16, we're going to see that this psalmist had a similar but even greater sense of security 
when he thought about his God, who he knew was with him. You'll see at the start of this psalm, it says a miktam of David. So, so firstly, right, the psalm was written most likely by David, who we know, uh, Howard talked about a little bit last week too, grew up as a shepherd boy and became the greatest king besides Jesus in the history of Israel. As for the word miktam at the start of the psalm there, we don't really know what it means. You're going to hear this a lot with the psalms. There's, there's these Hebrew words that, that are, are at the start of almost every one of them that scholars are not totally sure what they were supposed to mean. There's a few guesses with miktam. It might have been that this, is, this means something like golden crest or jewel, as if this was a particularly beautiful psalm. It could also just simply mean inscription. This is a psalm that David inscribed. Uh, or it could be some kind of musical term, like maybe a tune that they would sing it to or, or a liturgical moment in which they would use it. Miktam aside, the, the main point of this psalm, what, what I hope we're going to see this morning, is this. Because God is our only good, our true inheritance, and our sure counselor, we can be confident that he will preserve us in both life and death and bring us to perfect joy in his presence. Because God is our only good, our true inheritance, and our sure counselor, we can be confident that he will preserve us in both life and death and bring us to perfect joy in his presence. You'll see behind me on the screen a bit of a structure for the psalm as we work through it this morning. In verse 1, we have David's cry for help. In verses 2 to 4, we see God is our only good. In verses 5 and 6, we see that God is our true inheritance. In 7 and 8, that God is our sure counselor. And then in verses 9 to 11, we see what true preservation and total joy actually look like. So we'll start then in verse 1, which I will just read again for us here. David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So Psalm 16 here begins with the only request of the entire psalm. Right? David cries out, Preserve me, or keep me, or guard me. Which kind of begs the question, from what? Well, we actually don't know. There's, there's no clear reason why we would know when David wrote the psalm in his life. But verses 9 to 11 seem to imply that, that David was going through something serious. Something was going on. He was fearing for his life. But something beautiful about not knowing exactly what David was call, calling out for preservation from is that all of us can join him in that cry this morning. Right? We all come here with something. It might be a cancer diagnosis. It might be the loss or failing health of a loved one. It might be a wayward child or a broken relationship with a friend. It might be financial troubles. For some of the kids in here this morning, it might be your fear of going to the next grade as you finished up in June, or it might be that your best friend is moving away over the summer and you're scared about what that will look like going into the next school year. But for all of us here this morning, in the midst of all of these things that we might be crying out to God for preservation in, we can learn from and take joy in the same things that David did as he cried out to God for help. One other thing we should notice here in verse 1 is that David grounds his call for preservation in the fact that God is his refuge, right? He doesn't say, preserve me, O God, because I have done so much for you, as if he can make God owe him anything, he doesn't say, preserve me, O God, and I promise that I will do something for you in the future. He's, he's not trying to bargain with God, trying to earn preservation in this moment for, for some future act. He doesn't say, preserve me, O God, because I've tried everything else, 
as if God is the last resort when all other options fail. Rather, he says, if, if I can paraphrase a bit, preserve me, O God, because where else would I turn? This is a cry of faith. David knows that God will be his refuge and that no one and nothing else ever could be a true refuge in the same way that his God will be. And then David goes from request to declaration. We see that in verses 2 to 4 when he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. So this first phrase feels a little bit funny in English. Howard did some of the work of, of talking about this last week, but maybe for some of you who weren't here or who forgot, I'll, I'll just rehash a little bit of this. If you look down in your Bible, you'll see the word Lord twice, but it looks a little different both times. The first time, uh, it was L-O-R-D, all capital letters. And when you see that in your English Bibles, it means that sitting behind it is the personal name of God, the, the name of God that he reveals to his covenant people, to Christians, to, to the Jews of the Old Testament. And that is the name Yahweh. And then you'll also see the word Lord, but it's capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, which sitting behind that is the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. So, so then what David is saying is, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord, you are my Master. This is a declaration of David's allegiance. Yahweh is my God and nobody else. But, but more than that, David says that Yahweh is his only good. He makes this massive statement. He says, I have no good apart from you. When David looks at his life, at all that he has, bearing in mind that depending on when this was written in his life, this might be a king looking out over a kingdom. He looks at all of it and he knows that none of it is worth anything compared to his God. Christian, is this true of you today? Do you believe that God is your only true good? Right, if you had to choose today between God and your car, between God and your yearly vacation down south, between God and your bank account, or God and your family, or God and your life itself, would you, would you take that trade? Would you do it? And don't get me wrong, all of these are good gifts from God, but David's words are a reminder to us today that we must always be diligent in ensuring that we are not worshiping the gifts rather than the giver. So can you truly say to God this morning along with David, I have no good apart from you? And then I think one of the ways that, that David evidences that his only good is found in God is by the people who he delights in and find, finds excellent. He presents us with this contrast, right? So on one hand, there are the saints, literally the ones set apart for God. So for our purposes this morning, he's talking about believers. And, and these are the ones who David finds excellent and in whom he delights. On the other hand, though, are those who run after other gods. David says their sorrows are going to multiply, there's no excellence. There's no delight. In fact, David is clear that he won't even make offerings with these idolaters, which should feel obvious, 
right? I mean, we would hope that the king of Israel would be faithful enough to Yahweh to not start making sacrifices to other gods. But more than that, David says that he won't even say the names of these people who are worshiping other gods. He completely rejects those who reject Yahweh. He won't even do them the honor of saying their names. So David evidences that God is his only good by delighting in those who are faithful while refusing to participate with those who have rejected God. So is David saying that the best way to live our lives is to refuse to even acknowledge the existence of unbelievers, to refuse to speak to them, and to refuse to even say their names? I don't think so. Uh, I think what we're dealing with here is a contrast of honor and acknowledgement. I think what we see here is that we shouldn't be seeking to learn from and emulate non-Christians following after their behavior, but, but rather we should be refusing to be disloyal to God in the many ways that they are. And, I think if necessary, breaking off those relationships if they are drawing us into sin. Because God is our only good, not people. And so if there are people who draw us away from the Lord, we, we cut those relationships off for our good and for the glory of God. On the other hand, we ought to delight in the saints. Are your dearest friends other Christians? Right? The, the ones in whom you are most vulnerable, the ones who you find the most joy in being around, are they other believers? Or, or maybe another question is, who are your heroes? Are they unbelieving professional athletes or, or musicians or business owners or entertainers? And I would commend to you this morning, pick up some good Christian biography. We have 2,000 years worth of people who are worthy of being our heroes. Men and women of the faith who have sacrificed everything for the sake of the Lord, who were willing to die, who were willing to do whatever it took, sacrificing all of their comfort, all of their pleasure for the sake of honoring God. These are the people to emulate, to delight in as we see their faithfulness to God. So God is the only true good. But that picture is built on by the next reality that we see, and that is that God is the true inheritance of his people. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I really don't like doing this, but I have to make a comment on the translation here. Uh, in the ESV, which I am, I'm preaching out of, David says, the Lord is my chosen portion, which I think is missing a little bit of what the Hebrew is getting at. A very literal rendering of that is to say, the Lord is my portion of the inheritance. My portion of the inheritance. David isn't saying that God is the part that he chooses. Rather, he's saying that God is his inheritance. This language here draws us back to the end of the book of Joshua, if you're familiar with it. Right? The nation of Israel has conquered the other nations in the land of Canaan. They've taken the land as God has promised them. And then they cast lots, they, they essentially roll dice, to determine who is going to get which parts of the land. How are they going to divide it up between the 12 tribes of Israel? But interestingly, one of the tribes receives no land. And that's the tribe of Levi. We read why in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10. God says, Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. And here's why. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord God has said to him. 
So Levi received no land because they were the priests. They, they were the ones, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. Therefore, rather than land, they inherited God himself. But David was not a part of the tribe of Levi. David was from Judah. But he knew his Bible really well. Back in Exodus 19, when God is talking about his people, he says this. He says of Israel, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So David knew that while Levi served as priests now, in his day, right then, the truest state of God's people was that they would all be priests. And that's the reality for us today. The book of Hebrews is clear that we are all priests of the Most High God. We call that the priesthood of all believers. All of us serve in that role. And because we are all priests, we all share in a priestly inheritance, the inheritance of Yahweh himself. And so with this reality in mind, it's like David is saying to the people of Israel, look up. What is, this, what is the land to you when God himself is your inheritance? And we have to hear the same thing this morning. God's gifts are good, but what are God's gifts compared to God himself? You know, in some ways, I think it's actually harder for us to remember this than it was for Israel. Their inheritance was a strip of land off of the Mediterranean Sea. Whereas the physical inheritance for us as believers in Jesus Christ is the entire world. That's the promise. When Christ returns, we will reign over a perfect new heavens and new earth with him. But even then, even then, even as we inherit and rule over the world, God as our inheritance is even greater, even more wonderful, even more beautiful, and it is perfectly secure. So David says, he says that God holds the lot. So like we said, lots were cast to determine which tribe got which section of land. It's essentially rolling dice. It feels like a game of chance, but the people of Israel knew that God determined where these lots would land, that he was deciding on their inheritance. So David is saying that for him and for us, the lot has landed on God himself. And rather than it being up to us to hang on to it, to hold on and defend this inheritance that we've been given, David says that God himself holds it, that God guards it. We need not fear that someone can take away this inheritance because God has secured it for us. We are perfectly safe as his people. Nobody will snatch us from him or him from us. Brothers and sisters, reflect on this reality. God is ours. He's ours. And he is securely ours. For those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, God is the inheritance that can never be taken from us. And as David reflects on that reality in verse 6, we see a statement of joyful contentment, right? He says, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David knows that if he could pick any inheritance in the world, this is the one. This is the one he's taking. This is the one he would have. He has no doubt that God himself is to be chosen over anything that the world can offer. Over land, over wealth, or even over the world itself, David wants his God. 
And, O oh, church, that we would set our priorities as David did. That we would joyfully forsake everything else like the great saints of the past because we know that God is our true inheritance and that that true inheritance which we have been promised, it's greater. It's greater than everything that we can possess now. From there, David goes on to speak of God as our sure counselor. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Okay, so David's not just thinking about his future inheritance, right? He's thinking about the here and now. He knows that this all ends with him inheriting God. But what about in the meantime? He said, what do I do now? I know where this ends, but I'm, I'm living today. I have not inherited this fully. What do I do today? And in the meantime, he says, he trusts God as his counselor. David worships God as the one who gives him counsel. David trusts and receives God's wisdom. So for David, much like for us, this would be through his word. And for David, at this time when he was writing the psalm, that is the Torah. Those first five books of the Bible that we often have such a hard time getting through, that was David's Bible. That's, that's what he was reading on, or reading and reflecting on, that led him to write this psalm. It's those first five books. That's how he knew God and knew of him and knew that he could trust him. But more than that, David had the prophets, also whose writings we can read. These men and women who would come and they would receive true words from the Lord and they would deliver them to the people of Israel that they could follow. The point is that David expects God to give him the counsel he needs to be preserved and to live life faithfully. And we can expect the same thing because God is also our counselor. This will come frequently through his word. Right? That, that's why for 500 years the Protestant church has, has established that the sermon is the, the focal point, the center of our services. Because we believe that above all else, this is where we find wisdom. This is where we find life. And so we devote time to hear from God's word. But God also instructs us through our conscience as, as the spirit shapes it. Have you ever had one of those nights where it's like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and you are still awake and you just cannot stop thinking about the stupid thing that you did earlier that day. Like, that's a pretty common experience, right? We, we reflect on our own stupidity, and we realize it, and we feel guilty and really, really ripped up inside about that. I think that when David says that in the night also his heart instructs him, this is the exact experience that he is getting at, right? There are times when that experience is how the Lord is directing us. As we, wait, as we lay awake and our conscience is grieved, Right? We feel this conviction about something we've done. Our hearts instruct us. This can produce true repentance and the resolve to make right that situation. And when done properly, because trust me, we can be so self-condemning that those, those nighttime things are not always good. But when done properly, they're the result of a life that has been so shaped by God's word that our, our heart, our conscience knows when we have violated it that we, we feel these moments of conviction and God uses them to sanctify us. He uses them for our good. And so David is clear that God is the one who he wants leading his steps. He has set Yahweh before him, meaning he plans to follow wherever God leads. God's going to walk, David's going to follow. That's how it's going. And because of that, 
because of the commitment to trusting and following God wherever he leads, we hear this confident declaration. David says, I will not be shaken. Seven verses ago, David was calling out for preservation, calling out in distress. But now, having reflected on the beauty of God and all that he is for David, he is left with no doubts. Now, now we need to notice something this morning. David felt the distress, right? We, we, we really need to stop ourselves from doing the, like, fake pious thing where we just act like nothing bothers us. And we never actually feel the depth of, of painful emotions and bring them before the Lord as David does. So realize David starts by being honest. He comes to the Lord in need of preservation, but he refuses to stay there. He acknowledges the pain, acknowledges the hurt, but then he wants to move forward. He looked to the Lord, and now he knows that nothing is going to shake him. And we can have the same confidence. I mean, we sing about this confidence, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And for David, this confident, unshakable faith becomes the launching point to the climax of this psalm. In verses 9 to 11, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay, I always do this. There's the word therefore, which means we have to, what, what is David talking about? Why is he using the word therefore? And so David is, is clearly grounding this final section of the psalm in this reality that we've just talked about, right? So he went from fear and crying out to confidence that God will keep him from being shaken. And from that, he bursts out into these beautiful verses. And, and we really need to see, this is not just some like stoic, quiet confidence, this isn't David just putting on a tough face and just walking straight into the wind like nothing's going to bother him. It's more than that. This is a deeply rooted, deeply confident joy. It's what it is. It's not stoicism. He is joyfully following after God. David is satisfied in all that God is for him, and it leads to his whole being rejoicing. Okay, one more comment on translation, because if, if you're reading the NIV, you have a very different word. Um, the ESV renders this as my whole being. The NIV renders it as tongue. Very different ideas. It's because the Hebrew word sitting here is the word for glory. So it's kind of unclear what David is, is talking about. I, I think the ESV captures the idea well with whole being, right? My, my glory rejoices. All that I am, all that is within me overflows with joy because of my God. And then another confident statement from David. His flesh also dwells secure. Though he may have started fearing death, now he is confident that he need not fear. But then, at least in my opinion, David shocks us a little bit. Because at the end of verse 9, we expect that David means he is now confident that he's not going to die. That's what it sounds like. My flesh dwells secure. I I'm good. No one's going to kill me. But verse 10 makes it clear that that's actually not the case at all. We don't have time to, to get into the whole Old Testament concept of the afterlife when David uses the word Sheol, but, but we can be clear this morning that David's language here 
is saying that he believes that even if he dies, God has not and will not abandon him. David's security and confidence is not grounded in the sustaining of his earthly life, but rather it's grounded in a firm belief that even if he dies, God will not leave him. David knew that true preservation ultimately has nothing to do with our time here. Right? It's a blessing if it's long. We want long, fruitful lives. But those who know God are preserved in a way that will transcend these 60, 70, 80, 90 years. It goes on into eternity. But there's one problem here. David says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. But David's body is buried somewhere in Israel, has been for a few thousand years, and I think we can be pretty confident that it's seen corruption, that it has decayed. It was a human body. Worms have probably eaten a bunch of it. The bones are just kind of sitting there underground somewhere. So was David wrong? Or was he speaking of someone and something greater to come? In Acts chapter 2, we see Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, right? So, so Jesus comes, lives his life, dies. He's resurrected from the dead and ascends to heaven. And his disciples are waiting in a room. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and they go out and they preach. And 3,000 people are saved that day. But in Peter's sermon, hear what he says. This is Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then he quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter, making my job really easy this morning, he just interprets Psalm 16 for me. This is great. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." So Peter's point, David has seen corruption, but when he wrote these words, he was writing about Jesus. David's body is decayed now, but one day it will be raised up just like the body of Christ. David had hope for a physical resurrection grounded in the hope of a coming king who God had promised him in the book of 2 Samuel. And so even though it's only through a mirror dimly, even though, though David really is only seeing shadows, his confidence in this psalm is ultimately grounded 
in the gospel. Everything that David says in this psalm stems from the reality of the gospel, right? This, this message that God created, the universe, for his glory. That he created us as his image bearers to be in perfect relationship with him. That, that God is loving and merciful, but he's also holy and just. So he cannot leave sin unpunished. But we, well, we're rebels. We, we have rejected God's righteous laws and we've chosen our own way. And because of that, our sin has separated us from God permanently. That, that because of our rebellion against an infinite being, we deserve infinite punishment. That, that we deserve separation from God in hell. But God in his mercy sent the Lord Jesus Christ to live the life of perfect obedience that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve to die and rose from the dead to prove that he had conquered death so that by repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we can be saved. We can be restored to that right relationship with our creator. Everything else that we have seen in this psalm comes only through the gospel. If you do not come to God through the gospel, you do not have God as your only good. Right? If you don't know God the Father through Christ, it's not that you have other goods, other things that you can turn to. The reality is that you have no good at all. You have things that might satisfy you today, but they're going to be gone tomorrow. People are going to disappoint you, and they're going to pass away. Institutions are going to fail. Your possessions are going to rot and be destroyed. If you do not have God as your true good, you have no permanent good. If you do not come to God through the gospel, you don't have God as your inheritance. In fact, you have no inheritance. All that awaits you is the penalty for your sin. If you do not come to God through the gospel, you do not have God as your counselor. You're stuck trusting yourself or other human beings and I don't know about you, but as I look around the world now, I'm realizing that trusting other human beings usually doesn't go really well. We aren't that wise. We, we don't really understand the big picture. We need a counselor who can see it all. If you don't come to God through the gospel, this unshakable hope that overflows into joy that David has, it can't be yours. I don't see how. I mean, as we reflect on just the last few weeks, the last month or so, We've seen a refugee ship sink off the coast of Europe, killing hundreds of people. We've seen a tragic car accident out by Carberry, taking 15 lives. We've seen the continued war in Ukraine. We've seen a submersible, five human lives gone in an instant, imploded. What hope do we have? The world is broken. We need something from outside of this world to actually ground our hope in. And the only one who can sustain that hope is our God. Every good thing that we see in this psalm, it's only true of you if you have fled to Christ for salvation. But David is not done telling us about the good things. In the final verse, David is clear about what has been offered to us by God. Firstly, he says it plainly. The path of life is made known by God. So if we want life, if we want true, eternal, joyful life, we come to it God's way or we don't come to it at all. He makes known the only path to life. And if we take that path, 
we enter into an eternity in which there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. A right relationship with God through Jesus Christ is the only way to true preservation through life and death and total joy because of who our God is for us. I want to talk to the kids again this morning. First of all, y'all are doing really good. I'm used to, if I'm having to preach with kids in the room, there's usually some screaming and crying. This is, you've done really good today. Thank you for that. Um, but I just want to talk to you for a minute. And adults, you're welcome to listen in. Um, when I was your age, I really didn't like the idea of heaven. In fact, I remember laying on my parents' bed at, at seven or eight years old, crying, because I didn't want to go to heaven. Because in my mind, heaven was just a really long church service, and I did not want to do that. <laughs> but what David is saying, kids, is that if you believe in Jesus, and you trust him as your Lord and Savior, he is going to make sure that you are going to be in a place, ultimately, where you are as happy as you could ever be. I want to say two things about that. First of all, as you grow up and you learn more about God, the idea of worshiping him like we do on Sunday mornings for all of eternity will hopefully feel a little bit better. At, at 24 now, I feel a little better about an eternal church service than I did at eight. But in the new heavens and new earth, this place that we're going to be forever if we have put our faith in Jesus, I don't think we're going to be living in an eternal church service. In fact, I really believe that you'll be able to do a lot of the things that you love to do. But now you'll get to do them with Jesus, physically with you. I mean, I love playing football. I, I really believe that I'll still be able to play football in the new heavens and new earth. You might love coloring or, or playing games or hanging out with your friends. You might love baking or, or biking or skating. You're going to get to do those things but you'll get to do them in a place where your feelings can't get hurt, where people can't leave you out and ignore you. But again, best of all, you get to do it in a place where you are going to be with Jesus. To the adults, that, that sounds pretty good to us too, hey? Right? People kind of act like God is a cosmic killjoy, right? He, he sees fun and no, not happening, right? He just wants to stomp it all out, eliminate all joy, but Psalm 16 is clear that God wants us to experience eternal and infinite joy. But he wants it to be found rightly. He wants it to be found in him and not just in the gifts he has given. Because ultimately, none of that lasts, but God does. True joy is found in an intimate relationship with the triune God. As a bit of a brief aside, I think this is actually one of the biggest problems with the prosperity gospel, right? This idea that God wants us to be, you know, happy and, and healthy and rich now. Um, because these people get something right in the midst of very wrong. Because they are right that God wants us to be perfectly happy and always healthy and never having to worry about money. But they want it too soon. God has not promised that to us now. In fact, Jesus promised us, in this world, you will have trouble. But he has promised that to us later. And that day is coming. 
we struggle in a broken world now. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to be sick. We're going to be poor. We are going to mourn. But we have been promised fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore when we meet our king face to face. If we think back to what David has said earlier in this psalm, what becomes clear is that right at the highest level, at the very peak of this in an ultimate way, it's this, this fullness of joy and these eternal pleasures even in the midst of all these amazing things, living in the new heavens and new earth, reigning over them with Jesus, still, I really believe, getting to do the things we love to do here on earth, but in a perfected, not sinful way. Even though those things are wonderful, the reality remains that our joy will not be grounded in those things, but it will still be grounded in the fact that we get God, that God is our inheritance, and that there can be no greater joy than that. And so that's Psalm 16. Because God is our only good, our true inheritance, and our sure counselor, we can be confident that he will preserve us in both life and death and bring us to perfect joy in his presence. But this is only true for you today if you have come to him through faith, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And, and here's the reality. Um, if that's not true of you today, if you have not turned from your sin and fled to Christ for salvation, I, I, I kind of screwed you over today because you have no more excuses. You've heard the message now. This is, this is what God demands of the world, that we would come to him through Christ. You must turn today from your sin and come to him. But for those of us who have, my brothers and sisters in the Lord here this morning, hear this picture of who God is for us. God is our only good. And that's really good news because everything else that we have here, it's going to disappoint us. It's going to fail. But we have the ultimate good, the, the one thing, the one person, all of existence who can actually satisfy us forever. He is our good. But more than that, he is our true inheritance. Everything here is going to come and go. Right, that, that's the reality. One day, this building, it's going to be rubble. Our bodies are going to be in the dirt. Everything that we have built up to in this life will be gone. Most of us, our names will never be remembered in history. But we have God as our inheritance, and that is far better than any of those things could be. God is our sure counselor. It means we don't have to rely on feeble human wisdom. We have the revealed will of God preserved for us in the Bible. We can come to this. We can commune with our Lord and hear from him whenever we want. That's what he's given us. He has given us perfect counsel, perfect wisdom. And church, whether we live or die, he has promised that he will preserve us and that we will experience perfect joy, total joy, endless joy with him. And we long for this to come in its fullness in the new heavens and new earth when Christ returns. And so as we conclude this morning, I want us to think about that day together. I'll read from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers, by which he means the one who endures in Christ to the end, will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Let's pray. And so, Father, we long for that day, the day when it is fully realized that you are our inheritance, when we rule over this perfected world with your Son, But Father, in the meantime, we mourn and we weep and we get sick and we die. But we ask that you would ground our hope like David's was in the reality of Christ's resurrection, in the glory of the gospel. That each and every day we would reflect on these truths, that they would sustain us. And that we would see that even as we suffer now, we know, we know for certain that endless joy and eternal pleasures are, are, are ours in you. Amen.